friends, welcome back to the Rob Manus Show. We've got a great show this week. We're asking the big question, is the potential for violent radicalism increasing in America? Since September 11, 2001, most of the focus in the United States on radicalism was on the Islamist violence that we've hunted around the globe in the war on terror. I've observed today's guest ever since 9-11 when I was in the Pentagon there and I first saw him on cable news courageously talking about his opposition to violent radical Islamists like those attacking countries around the world. And he's a man of the Muslim faith. That was our country's focus until recently was Islamism, when the U.S. government homeland security types said it was white supremacists that are the violent radicals, and that we should fear them more than any other extremism. I've closely followed terrorism in our country most of my life, having been a bomb disposal technician and studied the terrorism in the USA in the 60s and 70s from communist infiltrated groups such as the Weather Underground, among others. And I'm puzzled because of two things. First, the Marxist-driven Black Lives Matter movement and its violence throughout the last half of 2020, and the massive invasion across our southern border, especially in the last 14 months, of illegal entries from around the world. These two facts lead me to believe, based on my extensive experience, that we're at least just as much at risk from an Islamist or other non-domestic act or terror act as we were in the years before DHS decided it was these white supremacists that don't seem to be doing much of anything significant enough to reprioritize our intelligence and law enforcement efforts away from Islamist terrorists and narco-terrorists and other terrorists. We'll discuss these questions today with Dr. M. Zudi Jasser, President American Islamic Forum for Democracy, a former U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander, currently the host of a Blaze Radio podcast titled Reform This, I love it. He's the founder of Take Back Islam, a co-founder of Muslim Reform Movement, and author of A Battle for the Soul of Islam. Dr. Jasser, welcome to the Rob Manus Show, sir. Thank you for coming on. It's great to be with you, Colonel. Thank you for having me. I know that you're a busy guy, uh, so I really appreciate uh, uh, making the time for us in this audience. My audience is going to be interested in what you have to say, sir. Uh, uh, I want to start off with, uh, uh, you know, you've learned a lot about radicalism, I know, because you've studied it for decades. Now, I've been watching you back, starting back when we both had a lot less gray hair, <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, one of the things that caught my attention when I first ran into your work is that you you really focused in on on your faith and the concerns with radicalism there and why things happen. So my guess is is that you've learned much about what takes somebody from a peace-loving person of faith to a radical, violent extremist in your work. And, you, and I think you apply it to other areas besides just Islamists. So take our folks through what you're seeing uh, today from the Islamist terrorist threat. Uh, and then we'll go into some of the other things that I talked about in my opening, opening monologue. Yeah, you know, uh, Rob, I'm, you know, I'm not a, a uh, 
you know, my day job is as a physician. I treat disease and, and uh, I, I learned in medical school on a Navy scholarship, but I learned mm-hmm. uh, obviously that you don't treat symptoms. You treat the, the core, the root cause, the, the diagnosis, the disease. And if you don't do that, you're going to continue to uh, uh, get more disease if all you do is suppress pain or suppress cough or whatever it is. And when it comes to radical Islam, the radicalism, the terrorism, the threat against our country is a symptom of a bigger problem. And after 9-11, many of us realized within the Muslim community that we're honest with ourselves, that the problem is not being addressed, that you can continue the whack-a-mole process of of, uh, defeating terror groups as they prop up, or defeating uh, radical regimes as they prop up. But unless the ideology goes through a process in which we as Muslims defeat that ideology, uh, the the problem is not going to go away. Antidote is not simply fighting against militancy, that somehow the problem is they become terrorists, that it's a binary issue where Muslims are either peaceful or they're militant. It's, it's not a binary issue. It's, it's a conveyor belt in which some of them that are Islamist, and let's define Islamism. Islamism is the political ideology that believes that the state's identity and the state's legal instruments should be driven by theocracy, driven by Islamic jurisprudence or Sharia, and that the Islamic state is not only the um, uh, goal, but it is the supremacist uh, idea for against all others. And they divide the world into the land of Islam and the land of war. So whatever is not run by Muslims is should be under conquest or at least uh, uh, sought to defeat. So, and this is not a small problem because you have a quarter of the world's population that's Muslim. And ultimately the Arab awakening in 2011 proved to us, and I think should have proven to the West that it's, we aren't as Muslim sentenced or doomed to always because of our religion uh, to be run by dictators. But the problem is, is uh, we can get into that if you want later, but uh, there were many other factors at play. And all I can tell you is that as, as an American, I see Americanism, the idea that you have separation of powers, you have your first liberty, which is religious freedom, a, a constitution that's based in the, in the defeat, in the establishment clause in which theocracy or the church can never run government, it cannot establish itself through government, but you still have religious freedom. All of these things are why we formed our American Islamic Forum for Democracy and why we feel that the problem is not terrorism. The problem is political Islam and the idea of the Islamic State, which dominates 56 countries around the world. So so in those Islamic states, from your view, from the reformist view, do you consider the, the entire state radicalized because they've adopted uh, the uh, Islamic form of government? Well, that's a great question because I think our government has been hamstrung by using terms, and, and we have, because we haven't been having a national conversation about it. I've testified to Congress, I think, nine or ten times about what is the radicalization process. Peter King had me uh, testify a number of times about Muslim radicalization. And from the outset, I said, listen, you know, Islamists aren't all militants. So if you right. define radical as somebody that wants to use military or terror or asymmetric warfare to achieve their ends, uh, you know, that is a small segment, probably five to 10, 15% of Islamists. 
But just like communism has militant communists and some that are, you know, extreme socialists, but still would never be compatible with Americanism, the vast majority of them might want to do it through democratic elections. And then once they take over, they're never going to look back. And I think similarly, Islamists, uh, the brew, if you will, the cauldron that brews militant Al-Qaeda and ISIS and, and uh, Hamas and others is a cauldron that the flag is about Islamic identity, their militaries. You know, let, let's look at Turkey, yeah. a NATO country. Uh, it's supposedly a democracy. Erdogan is, is, a, is a tyrant that when he was mayor of Istanbul said that democracy was like a train. You get on it. And then you get to where you want to go and then you get off. That's what he said yeah. when he was mayor of Istanbul. And now, sure enough, he's been the tyrant of Turkey since 2001 and uh, has now changed it into an Islamist state, which really has no business being in NATO. And, and ultimately, um, they were a democracy, uh, but they really don't hold on to the same ideals that we understand in the West when right. it comes to liberal democracy. So political Islam and the Islamic State, if you will, is the radicalizing idea. And you can't just defeat it by saying we're going to replace it by secular democracy. Right. We as Muslims have to marginalize the influence of the clerics, whether it's the clerics in Saudi Arabia, the, uh, the Sunni side in, in, in Cairo, and in Al-Azhar in Egypt, or the clerics on the Shia side in the Khomeinis in Tehran and uh, uh, in elsewhere uh, where where they dominate they're still supremacists they still want a theocracy and they will continue to use the militant sliver of their movements as the as the tip of the sword of them dominating the world yeah you made a great point there and a, and a great nuance uh, that i don't think a lot of people think about uh, amongst any group whether it be islamists or, or these white supremacists that dhs is now all of a sudden concerned about and that is, you, you can have radicals, and, and most people that are radicals are not necessarily violent uh, or militant, I think is the, the phrase you use. Uh, and they're not out to have a violent revolution. They're out to have a political revolution, and their ideas are radical, and they think uh, through those ideas and want to implement them. Uh, did I capture that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. They're all part of the same process, which is they see the ends which is an Islamic state, an Islamic constitution, where the, supposedly they feel the Quran would be the constitution, when in fact their interpretation of the Quran becomes the constitution. And the Muslim Brotherhood might feel they want to get there democratically, uh, and they do a civilizational jihad, or the Al-Qaeda's of, I mean, I'll tell you, the, the group that was most upset about Al-Qaeda and what they did in 9-11 uh, was the Muslim Brotherhood, because the Al-Qaeda operatives outed what the Muslim Brotherhood wanted. So Hamas was founded by the Muslim Brotherhood. They're a terror organization. So many terror organizations yeah. were founded by the Muslim Brotherhood, and yet their public arm is about rejecting terrorism. But they reject the means, but they don't reject the the ideologues coming from the sermons and the pulpits and, and elsewhere who basically say the same thing when it comes to demonizing the Jews, demonizing America, hating Israel, and uh, uh, hating democracy. That's very interesting the way you put that as you were talking uh, about the political arm and, the, and then the uh, militant arm, uh, uh, the uh, Irish Republican Army and Sinn Féin came to mind, uh, Jerry Adams leading the, the political side of it when that first came about, uh, uh, you know, and uh, 
even in our own country, the Revolutionary War had a, had a very large political side and a very small military side uh, that was used as the tool to, uh, to uh, complete the revolution and, and create this country. So, I, yeah, I, there's a political side and a, and a more militant or violent side to any ideology. It, you know, I mentioned the white supremacist thing, and I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek when I talk about DHS because I'm not buying it, honestly, uh, as far as a domestic terrorist threat in the United States. I mean, where do you see the, uh, uh, the terror threat inside the United States from the Islamist perspective nowadays? I mean, has it decreased? Are we still where we're at uh, uh, after everything leveled off after the global war on terror? Or uh, is it time for us to turn our, our lens of intelligence and law enforcement to other forms of extremism? Well, I'd, I would want your viewers to really look at it like a Cold War in that while I agree with you completely, obviously, the Irish example and others uh, are apropos when it comes to terror groups. But I think when it comes to the ideological battle, the example is really this is this is the Cold War against the Soviets on steroids. And the reason I say on steroids is uh, um, while the Soviets were building a global empire, uh, they may not necessarily have been very uh, uh, synergistically working with the Chinese communists and, and other communists, even though they, they might have sometimes some mutual areas of agreement, but they're still very different in the way they see the world. The Islamists, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan and their agreements with the Taliban, the uh, um, uh, Islamists of Iran, the Islamists of the Wahhabis of the Saudis or the Islamists of Egypt, elsewhere all really have a similar goal when it comes to legalisms, when it comes to their hate for democracy. So if I look today at the threat, we are even far before we were on 9-10-2001. Uh, we, the, the ascendancy of Islamist rule, and let me, let me contextualize for you where the threat's coming from. There are two massive threats when it comes to Muslim-majority countries. One is pan-Arabism, which is the dictatorship of secular military uh, uh, dictatorships that we see with Assad in Syria, that we see with uh, uh, Egypt's uh, National Democratic Party, with what used to be Saddam Hussein. Now, that's probably the only one that we know is neutralized, but it's Iraq now has been turned over to the Islamists of Iran. Uh, the monarchies, uh, while they claim to be our allies and economically try to be so, they ideologically are not you know, look, at there was a terror attack just a, a little over a year ago from a, a Saudi military guy that was trading in Florida that decided to kill uh, and, and do commit his jihad. So the bottom line is, even though those monarchs and others are kleptocrats that aren't necessarily Islamist ideologues and they're in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, always at loggerheads with the Islamists, the only difference, they're drinking from the same intoxicant, which is political Islam. The only difference is the monarchies and the Egyptian government and the Assads of the world are corporate top-down Islamists where they think their military thugs, their mafia should run that Islamic state versus the Islamists uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, etc. are sort of grassroots viral Islamists that think like the grassroots viral communists that hate the Soviets and the Bolsheviks and others 
they've sort of felt like this should be a grassroots revolution of the people for Marxism and it's communism. It's the same thing with the Muslim Brotherhood and it's Islamism. But they're both teaching that same type of political Islamic state ideology. So that has been growing exponentially since 9-11. America is weaker than ever. The way we withdrew from Afghanistan, really, I can't tell you the impact that's going to have on the next generation. Because the next yeah. generation of Islamists is going to say, if we wait them out, they will leave like a sheep that's been shot. And it doesn't matter. They Even if they stay here 10 years, they'll leave They'll leave weekly and we can then take over. The Taliban now is running Afghanistan, which is one of the most radical regime, terror regimes in the world. And they are getting billions from the West, from the UN, because of the famine and other things that's happening there. Mm. So the bottom line is, is they'll wait us out. We had no ideological. And that's the difference with the Cold War, is that the Cold War, we at least had hundreds of scholars and we had an information agency and others that was pushing Radio Free Europe, pushing the the in an offensive way the advocacy for Western ideas that we thought that, right. that those could defeat the, the the Soviets. And eventually, without firing a direct bullet against the Soviets, we defeated them and they fell apart. There were proxy wars, but we never had to fight them directly. And I think similarly with the Islamists, we're going to continue to fight them. And we can talk later about what's been happening in France, what's been happening in Austria, what's been happening in Belgium and in a number of European countries that now are seeing their biggest threat right now they were marching in the streets just a few months ago in Austria and in France because they were concerned about Islamism. And Macron, who's not any big time conservative, was giving speeches about French identity movements and the need mm -hmm. for people that come to that country to own up to believing in laïcité, which is the, the secularism of France, which is its identification, yeah. and reject the foreign ideas that are coming in that Islamists bring in, because Muslims are 12% of the population in France, not like the less than 1% in the United States. Mm -hmm. So they're really having a massive problem with this and they're addressing it frontally and they're on the verge of a culture war, which nobody's paying attention and it's happening all over Europe right now. Yeah, I've been, I've been watching it for some time now and uh, I'm very concerned about that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so concerned. I mean, I think the count's up to about 2 million people in the last 15 months since uh, Biden came into power uh, that have come across illegally uh, our southern border. They're, they're not all poor people from Mexico. You know, most of those people are from other parts of the world. And, and uh, you know, that, that just has to be increasing the threat uh, people that get inside the country and do two, one of two things. They go politically and try to bring those ideas that have been brought to Germany, France, Austria, uh, and, and get them put into public law, uh, and, uh, or they are on the violent side and they're planning terrorist attacks to hit targets to achieve their political aims. Uh, and, uh, and I just can't understand why our government has chosen to focus our resources, which are limited, even though we are very powerful economically still, even today, uh, uh, the most powerful in the world. Uh, but they've chosen to focus our limited resources of intelligence and law enforcement on, on an area that really it's hard to find the threat there when you really start digging into the facts on this white supremacist angle that the Department of Justice and Homeland Security have now taken over the last uh, 14 months or so. And that, that gives me great pause and cause for concern internally 
in the United States of America as we have these millions of people that we don't know who they are coming into this country. You, you know, uh, listen, Colonel, I, I, there's nobody more pro-immigration than myself as far as my family escaped political persecution, imprisonment in Syria. My grandfather was in jail for three years as as he fought against the Baathist, fascist Arabist party of, of what became Assad's party in 1970. Mm. Uh, but my parents escaped in the mid 60s, uh, uh, came here legally. We're actually waiting for a few months until a congressman, I think, in Ohio gave them uh, uh, the ability to have political asylum. But I think people should come here that agree with what America is and what it means and what it ideologically, you know, those that come here just for a buck or that come here for economic reasons versus political ideology, ideological reasons, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we should find a way to vet those. And in the, in the Cold War, we used to be asking immigrants whether they were members ever of the Communist Party. Now oh. our vetting is only about if they ever were members of terror organizations or, or if they have any uh, advocacy for terrorism, which is violence versus the ideologies of what they're coming into here uh, as supposedly as Americans. And yet that that's the legal immigrants, let, let alone the ones that we're just sort of opening the floodgates to, as you said. So I, I preface my comments on that because the reality is, is that if you look at the data and I have, I have a number of family in Aleppo and Damascus that have uh, passed fighting uh, against Assad's regime recently and and uh, we're miles away from chemical weapons that were used. So God, you know, God help them. We pray for them every day. Uh, but for the refugees that escaped, I can tell you that my family in Aleppo, if somebody came from a neighborhood two blocks away, they're not sure if they're ISIS or what they are. So yet they were going in the millions into Europe. And the studies show that 10 to 20 percent of them had sympathy. The best uh, numbers were had sympathy with ISIS. Now, 80% of them were just women and children and others that wanted the, to, to be safe and uh, loved the Europeans for their societies and didn't want to attack. But if you do the math, that's a heck of a lot of folks that could have predilection for terrorism and they saw increase in rapes and other things that were just horrific. So this is not fear-mongering of foreign uh, ethnicities. This is about the reality of security, number one. Number two, Colonel, the thing that's really important to talk about, and I tried to do this with senators and, and members of Congress, I said, listen, I was in the Navy 11 years. The security process of vetting folks that got security clearances, not just citizens, but that got security clearances had a lot to do with ideology. Why can't we add a filtering process? You know, I wrote a book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam. Chapter nine in it is about Nidal Hassan. Nidal Hassan, basically you look at his CV, his resume, it looks frighteningly similar to mine. He was an army officer, was on an army medical school uh, a scholarship, went to uniform services medical school, became a psychiatrist. The guy was giving lectures and grand rounds that should have been about psychiatry. He's actually talking about Al-Qaeda. He was talking to our, uh, uh, the imam that we finally targeted and assassinated appropriately in Yemen, yeah. in Awlaki. And ultimately, nobody wanted to say anything because of political correctness. Even the posthumous evaluation of uh, Awlaki and his connections with it was done inappropriately. Never mentioned Nadal's name, never mentioned jihad. The, this multi, multi hundred million dollars uh, panel, a commission that looked at Fort Hood and the incident did none of the things it should have done for, for ideology. And still, when I talked to members of Congress, 
I said, listen, you need to have filters for political Islam, not only with our security clearances, but with people coming into the country. And they're like, oh, there's no temperature for that. We can't do that. It's, it, it will cross the line of religious freedom. I said, this is not a religious ideology. There are many pietistic Muslims that I can sit with somebody in 10 minutes and tell you whether they see their worldview through an Islamic lens or through one based on liberty and freedom. Two very different things that have nothing to do with the personal practice of Islam as a faith that I believe I follow as, uh, you know, believing in the God of Abraham and a lot of other things that are personally pietistic. But there was no fire uh, uh, for that. And I, I can tell you that the core of my message is that until this country gets the, the, the cojones, uh, the strength to be able to address the threat within our militaries, within our Pentagon, within our intelligence services and our police and, and borders and elsewhere of the ideology, nonviolent ideology of political Islam, we will we will continue to to wither away from attacks abroad and domestically. I can't say I don't agree with you because I totally agree with you, uh, Dr. Jasser. And, and let me just say, I, I'm sorry we live in a country where we have to preface our comments. I am pro-immigrant. I'm pro-legal immigration. Uh, one of the most, uh, one of the biggest honors I've ever had was swearing in new citizens, uh, and uh, and the support that you get from those that when you run on a pro-legal immigration platform is phenomenal in the, in this country, and that's the way the country should be, uh, you know. Uh, so because when we're not, when we're pro, everybody come on, no matter what you are, and we don't care who you are or what you believe and those kind of things, you end up where France is and Germany and Austria and a lot of other countries in Europe that have just opened the floodgates. And as you mentioned, the numbers are just astronomical when you really think about it. So that's why I'm very concerned. And, you know, uh, you talk about, we talk about, uh, uh, you know, not wanting to to uh, do the wrong thing on uh, Nadal Hassan's case, or or uh, asking people coming to the country if they're political Islamists and those kinds of things. But at the same time, uh, we're incarcerating uh, so-called white supremacist uh, uh, extreme or or white extremists, uh, uh, even if they're not white, they call them white extremists uh, by our government and our law enforcement. Uh, at the federal level, uh, because of their ideology, because of what they and think, because they think a, an election was stolen. There are people in jail today. The judges have actually said it still today, held with, before their trials, because they still believe the, an election was stolen. Uh, and, and we've got to apply the same law to everybody equally, or we go down this trail that uh, allows this in. Uh, you know, and it's not about allowing people or faith or anything like that in. That's totally I, understandable. I'm a First Amendment advocate. I'm an advocate of liberty. I'm an American. That's what we Americans do, whether we were born here or, or immigrated here. That's what we're supposed to do. Uh, so, you know, uh, I've spent many time, much time with people of the Muslim faith and have m many brothers and sisters uh, that are part of that, and uh, I would never think they would want to do me harm just because I'm different than them. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to do them harm because they're different from me. But it really puzzles me, uh, sir, that 
I listen to you, and, and you, you, you are consistent with what I've heard for decades now from you and those that agree with you, and that is this threat continues to grow, and, it, and it's not necessarily a violent threat that you can see like a terrorist cell. It's a political threat, uh, just like communism is a political threat. I think we ought to go back to asking everybody coming to this country whether you've been a member of the Communist Party or not. Uh, in addition to uh, asking them if they're part of uh, believers in political Islam, because it's incompatible with uh, freedom. Both of those are. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we need to retool completely our foreign policy approach, right? So mm -hmm. what happens is in foreign policy, we either, you know, there's, it's a binary approach. Uh, mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, uh, they either become part of our airspace or part of the Russia-China airspace. So we have a binary approach. So they, yeah. if we're going to be their friend, then we ignore all the crimes against humanity they're doing within their borders. We ignore the fact that, you know, the, the reality is, is the Pakistani military, even though the their, their government is supposedly secular, is, is if they went to war against India, they would declare a jihad they would declare that they were doing this under the rubric of jihad. Same thing, the, it's not a surprise. The Saudis were all like, oh, we don't know how this officer got, you know, uh, was was not vetted right when he went to Florida. And it keeps happening and happening. 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi. The Wahhabism ideology is, is extremely supremacist and anti-Western. And the bottom line is, is when the Turkish government, for example, uh, um, sent its troops into Syria, uh, and our government allowed them to do that, and they slaughtered Kurds. Just was just a few years ago, in one of yeah. the last uh, months of the Trump administration, we sort of let them do that, mm. uh, and we turned our back on the Kurds. Not only in Iraq, we turned our back on the Kurds again that were on the border, and let them take 50 miles of Syria. And and the re when they were releasing videos showing that they were doing a jihad against the Kurds. Now people don't realize the Kurds are Sunni Muslims, but they're nationalist Kurds first. And the yeah. Muslims second. So there, there was not one act of terror that people have ever reported committed by Kurds in Iraq against Americans because yeah. they're an example of how Sunni Muslims and Muslims can be de-radicalized or counter-radicalized because their Kurdish national identity dominated what they would fight for. So the issue is, is we now have to retool our foreign policy and how we approach Muslim ideology, it's a faith, but it's an ideology. It's not a race. You talk, they talk about Islamophobia and other things as if Islam is a race. Yeah. They want to talk about those things because they want to suppress thought leaders like yourself from ever dealing with the issue. Because if they make you feel that you're racist by addressing Islam, then somehow you can't debate the issue that, well, maybe there are other forms of Islam and not that Islam that we would uh, embrace. And this is the issue is that the... Turks, when they went in there, had videos of them declaring jihad against the Kurds and against Syrians. And this was a NATO country doing that. And nobody talked about that. The Saudis, their military might today be pro-American. But if in a few years they changed their mind, it would be a jihad against the West that their military would do. So they're far from actually secularizing and becoming right. Democrats, if you will, with a small d. And I think this is what's, what we had an opportunity to begin to look at in the Arab awakening was that if we look at our allies, the Pakistans of the world, we should grade them on an A to an F. And 
Pakistan is an F plus or a D minus when it comes to every parameter of values we share, but we'll give them a D minus because they do balance and, and we do have a lot that uh, from a regional perspective that uh, we get from having some, but even when we went to get the Bin Laden, we didn't even get their permission. We did it without even telling them, which tells you a lot. So Absolutely. a lot of these countries, I think we need to begin to hold them accountable. And I was on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom appointed by Senator McConnell from 2012 to 16. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that the toughest meetings I had when we went to Saudi, we went to Egypt when the Brotherhood was running it, we went to Pakistan, Turkey. The toughest meetings I had, Colonel, were with our embassy folks. Ambassador Patterson in Cairo was shouting at me saying, Jasser, what are you trying to do talking to the government? These are democratically elected. We can't say they're terrorists. And I said, have you read the charter? They, they don't even think you as a woman have any place anywhere in their government. So this is not an ally of any of the ideas. My family escaped Syria to come to America to cherish. And yet yeah. you're setting them all aside because you view democracy in a way that they want you to, which is majoritocracy and not really about minority rights, which is a very different concept. It is a very different concept uh, and one that we must protect in this country uh, at all costs, in, in my opinion. The, the, uh, you mentioned changing, you know, retooling our foreign policy. In your view, what are, the, what are the top three big things we need to do? Because, you know, Turkey is a member of NATO and we see with this Ukraine-Russia war uh, how important NATO still could be uh, you know, what are you, what are your views on that? Should they be kicked out of NATO? Those words may have come out of my mouth at one time or another. Uh, and, uh, I've seen what they've done during this Ukraine fight and they really haven't acted like they're a NATO ally, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the, the top three things, you know, I sort of see the world as a triangulation with some countries sort of lost in the middle. The triangulation is sort of the Russia-China part of the one triangle, uh, the Islamist threat on the other part of the triangle, and then Western democracies on the third part of that triangle. And in the middle are countries like Turkey. Turkey, you know, I, people give me the, the sort of semantics that you can't kick them out. Uh, NATO doesn't have a mechanism for that. Well, I, I heard, I talked to some experts in Europe and you could basically dissolve Turkey uh, one day and the next day reconvene it without Turkey. That's right. And uh, I think they've lost the right to be in, in, in NATO. Um, and it's been evidenced by, if you look at the way Iran subverted sanctions, a lot of it was gold sales and other things through Turkey. Uh, Turkey has uh, looked at, at purchasing Russian uh, military weapons. And now we're seeing some of the, even the oligarchs, supposedly Turkey that took in a lot of the Syrian refugees uh, was so anti-Assad, but they changed their tune. They started out pro-Assad actually for many years and, and are opportunists when it comes to the region uh, in, in many ways. And uh, they work closely with Qatar and have been propping up Muslim Brotherhood ideologies, especially if you look at Al Jazeera, uh, which is the information agency that comes out of uh, Qatar that I, th mm -hmm. I think should register as a foreign agent in Washington, just like RT, Russian television, yeah. registered as a foreign agent uh, under yeah. the FARA Act. Uh, but Turkey, uh, Islamists, movements around the world look at the AKP party of Turkey and Erdogan's party as sort of the penultimate uh, success and in trying to help rebuild that Ottoman Empire, if you will. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of conflicts they have. I think that uh, ultimately, 
as we look forward, I wouldn't say we abandon them and make them into an enemy, uh, but just simply be more transparent in, in our relations with them and that we're not getting much in return uh, for their NATO membership. Uh, and, and in fact, it, it's simply a, a paper relationship and not necessarily anything that we get much back. Uh, I do think ultimately, though, some of those countries, if you look at the Abraham Accords, it's a good example. There, you know, are those our allies? Dubai, uh, uh, the Emirates, I mean, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think President Trump did a good job in rebuilding some of that relationship. But what he did was he reset the clock to where we were when the Arab dictators were on our side against Russia and, uh, uh, you know, the, the Soviet empire, if you will, uh, in the mid 20th century. And I think some of the success of the Abraham Accords was that for the first time, especially in Bahrain and in the Emirates, you had clerics talking about the value and the Islamic value of having and recognizing Israel as a state. So I saw real progress there. But today, I read about Russian oligarchs parking their $600 million yachts in Dubai because they are, are able to bypass sanctions. I've read recently the, the head of the Emirates met with Assad and they're working on trying to outcompete the Iranians with influence in the Syrian economy. So I can tell you as a Syrian American, you know, I find that not only reprehensible, but just simply corrupt. They're kleptocrats. They don't really, they sort of deal with the the way that they can get the, the best economic uh, uh, result, they're transactional, and it has nothing to do with real desire for freedom or any any ne necessary change. So I do think, you know, ultimately I see us having to re, you know, sort of revision what the narrative should be and what would be mission accomplished in the Middle East and not do it in short term, but rather in a Cold War mechanism where the Wall Street Journal had a piece about why the cold, a cold war against the Chinese would be a good thing in the long term. And it was wonderful. And I think similarly, a cold war with the Islamists, where we become more energy independent, we let yeah. the, the Saudis drink their oil rather than us depending on it. And that would then force them into change. Now, those countries might get a lot worse before they get better. But the difference, and this is one big difference with Russia, is that they're not nuclear powers yet. And, and ultimately, other than Pakistan, but ultimately uh, that will force them as they dissolve and then re-emerge. Syria, for example, is obviously a disaster. Does that mean we should have supported Assad? No, we should have had a policy that prevented Russia from uh, uh, dominating the Syrian uh, civil war, which I think would have then allowed Assad to, to fall, but we didn't. Yeah. And I'm not saying we should have gone to war against Russia, but there were things we could have done before Russia flew sorties over Syria beginning in September 30th, 2015, for four years of the Syrian civil war that we did not do, uh, uh, not necessarily militarily, but at least strategically. So there's a lot of things involved there. But at the end of the day, just like treating cancer, patients get sicker and then they get better. And I think unless you envision that, you can't continue to work with devils and assume that somehow we're going to have some righteous results come out of that. Yeah, it's it's amazing that uh, you're saying the same things that I've said in political campaigns. I've run on these same platforms. You know, we need to stop being imperialist Rome uh, and enforcing everything with our military uh, like we have since 2001. Uh, I mean, and I'm not talking about Cold War military. I'm talking about military action uh, and combat uh, and start really 
getting serious about these ideologies and how we take them on the way we did the Soviet Union. You know, there, there was, a, you know, initially there wasn't bipartisan consensus on the Soviet Union when it first, be, you know, came out as a big threat to the United States and to the Western world. Uh, but eventually we started really putting our intellectual uh, resources and intelligence resources and, and economic resources and academic resources into that effort, which led to its downfall without, literally without firing a shot between the two nations. Uh, and so being strong, we have to maintain our strength. What we're doing with this Ukraine issue and vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and its nuclear posture, I think is very weak and we're not maintaining our nuclear umbrella or deterrent umbrella while at the same time we're trying to trying to put military uh, effort into the Ukraine side uh, it's it's crazy to have a foreign policy and national security policy that operates like that but that's a result of these decades of putting the military action foot first i believe uh, and and it's time you're really right it's time uh, maybe it is multiple cold wars on china and and political Islam, uh, uh, and a lot of them are working together so much, it's really just one, quite frankly, and we've got to get serious about it, and we're not serious about China. We really aren't. And, and you know, ultimately, as a conservative, I'll tell you that, you know, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of historians that have said, ultimately, that you're, you know, um, Powers in history have ultimately only been defeated when they defeated themselves internally. And that's actually what's been happening in America. If you look at yeah. um, as much as uh, many of us fight for diversity and anti-racism, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, has, has tried to destroy institutions of what America means. Uh, our school system now are, are all over. Even the medical profession is, is advocating for critical race theory and other things that is is just a, a new type of racism if you really look at what they're talking about and it's marxist and globally i i've been recently trying to educate folks that there's this red green axis where the far left in many of the arab countries and islamic countries has been for a long time the venezuelas of the world have been working with the irans of the world in the un to try to defeat israel and america and the west this is not a new relationship and that's why you see the Islamists like Ilhan Omar working arm in arm with AOC and the, the radical socialists in Congress and elsewhere. And they do so under the name of equating, uh, um, you know, Black Lives Matter movement of, of anti-racism supposedly with the Islamophobia and other things. And it's like they're, they're completely uh, uh, singing from the same hymnal. And it, it is not a surprise and it's so easy to defeat if we would only unite back again as conservatives and, and independents and others about what America means and what what is true diversity is it it's diversity of ideology it's tolerance for uh, and and not only tolerance for pluralism of who we are and that what unites us is the idea that is Americanism and that we should not destroy our founding fathers institutions and other things but rather realize that they were uh, amazing heroes who were had faults that ultimately our country corrected in a civil war and corrected later and we're still trying to correct some things but the foundations were the best and first democracy that was successful on the planet 
It took, you know, the the it, 1700 plus years after uh, Jesus Christ to find a country that that celebrated really was God-given's rights, God's uh, inalienable rights for the first time. And I think Islam is going through that same process. We're only 1440 years old as a religion, and we're now going through that same reformation enlightenment yeah. process that is going to be very bloody within the Islamic world. But unless Americans really cherish and remember what our history truly is, we're not going to in any way know who our friends or who our enemies really are because we don't even know who we ourselves are. Well, it was very bloody in the Christian world too, you know, so uh, exactly. I mean, that's a harbinger uh, or a lens to, to see through the, of what Islam is going through right now uh, for the next few hundred years. The, uh, but you pinned it down, Dr. Jasser, and that is believing in the principles, the foundational principles in these Marx, this Marxist ideology, and it's, it's critical theory is the main title of it. It's CRT as applied to race. Uh, this critical theory is applied to transgenderism now and homosexuality, uh, and, and it all uses the same approach, and it's a, an approach that the Soviet communists loved to do, uh, and that was divide us by our different views uh, on who we are, you know, by our tribes, by our identities, uh, and those kind of things, and make it impossible to make the term e pluribus unum be true anymore. That's what its in state goal is, and that will be uh, the internal downfall of the United States. And I'm very, that's one of the reasons I'm so concerned about this. this Homeland Security focus on so-called white supremacist extremism because when you dig down into it, it looks it's really looking at people that are espousing very patriotic, principled ideas that come from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. And it's almost as if if you're loyal to the Constitution, then you're rebelling against the current government of the United States. And that's a problem. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, there's two elements to this. You find now that the, uh, organizations, the, the supposed homeland security folks are beginning to red flag organizations that have the term patriot, that have the term freedom, that have the term liberty in their name. I, 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 I'm looking at this and I can't believe this is happening. It's exactly like what the Islamists who say that the Zudi Jassers, Ezra Nomani, the, the folks in our Muslim reform movement, we are actually not even, they, they apostatize us and say we're not even Muslim because anyone who hmm. criticizes them must be criticizing all of Islam and therefore they're, they're not even Muslim. So actually what the CRT people are doing is exactly the same thing as they're de-Americanizing folks that actually are probably the most, I mean, I do the work of reform in my faith because I feel that that is going to be our legacy as Muslims. Either we, 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 we preserve a faith that can be in harmony with a country, the best country in the planet like America, or we will not have a faith anymore worth saving within the next two generations. Or, and I think the same thing's happening when it comes to this so-called threat of white supremacism. Sure, there's bigots out there. Sure, there's, there's movements that uh, are, are, you know, obviously should be marginalized, and, and the vast majority of us do that anyway. Uh, but, 
you know, it's they do the statistical jujitsu where they talk about this many number of, and you see organizations, you know, it's like the ADL. I used to try to work with them. Now they're basically an arm of the Democratic Party. They claim to be working against anti-Semitism, and yet they, fo they, they, they focus on things that are unrelated to truly working against anti-Semitism. It's really yeah. simply more political opportunism for most of the work that they do because they're not really focused on the actual threat. So if you do the numbers where Muslims are less than 1% and they're comparing acts of terror by Muslims, which are less than 1% of America, to acts of terror completed by supposed white supremacist groups, which are a fraction of whatever few hundred million people in America that are uh, uh, of white origin, mm -hmm. the ratios is just unbelievably different. So the threat is actually much, much smaller. And if you look at actual acts of violence, it's even smaller than that. So the numbers are completely part of a statistical jujitsu. And then you do globally, it becomes a completely different ball game. And they say, well, they're not being committed here. So what do we care? Well, in, in the global village that we live in, it's, it's, it is very, very relevant. Yeah, it certainly is. It, it's extremely relevant. Uh, and and the, our approach as the leaders of the free world uh, needs to be changed. Uh, and we need to do some reflection internally, I believe, uh, and uh, do some hard turns of the big ship, uh, the carrier battle group, uh, to get us pointed in the right direction. And I just don't see that happening uh, under the current administration. It just seems to be digging more and more uh, into the hole. Yeah, this administration is, has wedded itself to the most radical Islamic movements that uh, are, are not, you know, that are supposedly mainstreamed with Rashida Tlaib and with Ilhan Omar. Uh, they have not even been able to get them to condemn their anti-Semitism, uh, which is which is so obvious. Uh, Rashida Tlaib put a, a sticky note of the the of with the word Palestine on it over Israel when she walked into her congressional office after her election uh, from her district in the Detroit area. And the Biden administration uh, picked a liaison with Congress that was a close friend of the Council on American Islamic Relations and uh, uh, also a close friend of Rashida and Ilhan Omar. So, you know, this is where the Biden administration uh, has been. It has farmed out. Uh, supposedly Biden did a, a Biden did an amazing sort of bait and switch as he campaigned from his basement in which uh, once he got elected, he supposedly was part of the moderate wing of the Democratic Party and basically has farmed out his foreign policy, domestic policy and others to the most radicals the, the most radical in his party. And, and you know, ultimately, I think that uh, hopefully things will change. Uh, but I do think it's, it's sort of revealing to the fact that the Democratic Party itself and the left in America has sort of lost, lost its way to its progressive radical, radical wing. Yeah, I agree. And that's one of the things that really bugs me about where we are politically in the country is because, you know, Democrats and Republicans and independents we all used to agree on one thing, that America was the only country that was founded on liberty and freedom, that there were God-given rights uh, that are inalienable to a human being. If you're an atheist, you can say that uh, you have inalienable rights as a human being. If you're a religious person, you can say they're God-given rights that are inalienable uh, as your existence uh, from Him. Uh, and uh, I don't see that 
uh, happening anymore as they continue to let the progressive wing of the party be taken over by these Marxists and Islamists. You know, I'll tell you, it sort of harkens back to one of the things we in our we have a Muslim Liberty Project in which we talk to Muslim youth mm-hmm. about how to effectuate change in society and in our communities and the mosques that are dominated by misogynistic male, you know, uh, radicals yeah. uh, and, and women don't have a voice. Minorities don't have a voice. I, you know, uh, um, have as much as I've never been physically kicked out of a mosque. And we certainly don't have any leadership role in the vast majority of mosques uh, in America. Um, but at the end of the day, the debate needs to happen. And what happens when you have the debate, there was a study done, multiple studies done right after the Arab awakening in 2011, where you saw governments that were lethal dictatorships just fall apart from Tunisia, which was the Twitter revolution to Syria, which was the YouTube revolution, Egypt, which was the Facebook revolution. So they saw social media impacted, but the studies showed that you had a flat, and we saw this with the Tea Party in America, you had a flat curve of involvement and effect and ability to effect change until you started to get to 8%, 9%. And the, and the inflection point was 10%. Once 10% of the population in Egypt showed this, for example, 70 million people, I think in Egypt, when, when nine, seven, eight million people were on the streets, the government, even though it's a dictatorship, and you thought they could just kill people got paralyzed because people just weren't working. 10% of the population completely turned and it became 20, 30% in the streets, actually. And that's why Egypt was paralyzed and they got rid of Mubarak and shifted the seats and got another dictator in and the brotherhood then won. Yeah. Similarly, the Tea Party movement was effective in America because it got that inflection point beyond 10 to 15% of the conservative movement. And I think this is what we forget is that is that right now, the progressivists are doing the same thing to the Democrats. I think the majority of that party needs to reject their old establishment, which was the Hillary's and others of the world, and also realize that they can have a voice if they figure out how to outplay the progressivists in social media. Same thing's happening, I think, in American conservatism. Our problem is that we're so independent-minded in the conservative movement. You know, that's really our core liberty, libertarian mindset. It becomes hard to unite that. And I'm finding the same thing with anti-Islamists in the Muslim world. They're all about anti-theocracy, anti you know, government, and yet they don't want to unite. They form 100 different parties. So the brotherhood ends up winning because they're all united under an Islamic banner. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting dilemma, uh, but it's an important objective that we have to reach and we have to work every day in our lives as Americans to to help your faith get through its reformation and to help this country turn back to its principles and so that when we're arguing politically uh, with somebody, I can have a solid feeling in my heart that that person is debating in good faith on his or her belief in the United States of America and what it was founded on. And I don't think we're there for a lot of people. I agree. And, you know, the cancel, uh, the canceling of people, uh, the uh, fact that somehow it's not giving them the freedom to to disagree with them, but rather making sure they don't speak. That kind of thing is actually a, a emblematic or in medicine, we call it a pathognomonic, a pathology that really sort of depicts the disease itself. 
and the the intent to cancel people that you disagree with actually i think shows where we are right now it's exactly the response to what you just said which is the reason they're not uniting is they'd much rather erase somebody than actually engage them in a respectful equal kind of way absolutely well dr jasser thank you so much for spending so much time with us uh and talking through these issues it's time for that conversation we need a new cold war we really do and get our all of our resources and all of our elements of power in the united states and the west focused on protecting ourselves and uh helping other people become free in this world in a way that they could stay free instead of what we've been doing well thank sir, you Colonel. sir how would you uh would you like people to find your work on the web uh, and find you on social media where would you like them to go so first thing is our website aif as in forum aifdemocracy.org second thing listen to my podcast uh, at the blaze it's on itunes and and uh, wherever else you find your podcast it's called reform this and find me on twitter at dr zudi jasser d-r-z-u-h-d-i jasser j-a-s-s-e-r well thank you sir god bless you and your family uh, and your uh fight to defend liberty and uh i appreciate your work thank you god bless appreciate it Colonel. good night well friends that was a great conversation with Dr. Zudi Jasser, Navy veteran, uh, medical doctor, and a real warrior for liberty. Uh, and I mean true liberty and all of our inalienable rights from God uh, and nature. Uh, we have a big job to do. We do need a new Cold War, and it's got to be focused on these ideologies, not skin color, not religion, but ideologies that want to annihilate the principles of the United States of America. Until next week, I'm Rob Manus. Have a great night.